Well, um, I do have a word that I'd like to share with you from from uh, Ephesians two. So, if you brought a Bible, I, I want to read a few verses here in a moment. I, let me let me just kind of give you a rundown as to why I'm thinking in this direction. I told you a moment ago we're going to talk about grace, which is not a shocking topic for me. Um, we've we've uh, been preaching grace as the underpinning to everything we've talked about in Christ for a long, long time. I don't want to run back through my story and my testimony and my journey, but um, I did have a, a, a brief phone encounter this week with a listener who, before we got off the phone, told me that about 10 years ago, they were prompted to listen to a sermon we had done uh, on grace, and she said that message changed my life, literally. I was already a believer, but hearing that message about grace just transformed my walk. It excited me about Jesus, and I couldn't get enough of the Lord, and it just made me want to, it made me want to live for Christ again. And, and so that was moving and blessed my heart, and I went and looked the sermon up that she had commented on. It's the beauty of having all this stuff available out there. And, and I keep everything I've preached for the last 15 years in these little notebooks and just outlines so I can always see where I was and what I preached. And, and it was the sermon that kicked off our building. We moved buildings at our old church in Missouri in 2012. We left one location, went to another location that had been given to us. And on the opening Sunday, I did a message called Everyday Grace, the point of that sermon was to try and introduce grace as, a con- as more than a concept, but as a day-to-day experience for Christians. And um, it sort of set the tone for our new building and our new direction. And so this week, I've been dwelling on that old sermon um, from 10 plus years ago, looking at the notebook on it trying to get my mind back around where I was the morning I preached that. I don't do that much because I'm not a look back kind of guy. I don't go back into my own sermons much in archives. I don't re-preach stuff, you know, go back and say, let's freshen that up. I like what's new, what's fresh, what's the Lord saying to me today? Um, put that with the fact that over the years, I've had so many people will say, uh, what sermon would you recommend for my cousin who just started getting interested in grace and doesn't know anything and needs to hear a sermon that's got all that stuff in it. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know what to tell you about your cousin. I mean, I don't know what your cousin, I don't know where they are in this. And and, uh, because sometimes you can bring people into whatever you did last week and it's way over their head and it shoots right past them because you're on something else with all this underpinning of grace and finished work. For people that watch every week and listen every week, all that underpinning's great, but you don't have to go back and resurface sermons on righteousness, sermons on identity. I don't have to, like, I don't have to walk into Chapin and remind you that you're the righteousness of God in Christ because you forgot last week. You know, you you've got that. You know you are in Christ. You know you are forgiven. You understand the grace of God. So sometimes it's really tough for me to go, yeah, go listen to that sermon. But, you know. I, so it's gotten to where I'm, I'm sending them 10 years ago. And I'm going, I did one way back in 2010. It's called, you know, go, go listen to that one. And so couple that with this thought of that was the, a message that changed this person's life. I thought, 
we get to Chapin Sunday night, I'm going to do a grace fundamentals. Just a, an ABC on grace. And I don't want to insult your intelligence because you know the grace of God as a reality. So I, I want to do this in a way that speaks to your knowledge of grace, but speaks beyond you <laughs> to people who might need the title Grace Fundamentals to go, what, is, what are we talking about when we say the grace of God? And so in some ways, this is a reboot. <laughs> it's a remix of the old concepts of grace. But I, I can't help but be current when we talk about it. I can't help but bring who you, re- you are now into the conversation. And so therefore, those sermons change. They, they become more, they go different directions. And so I'm kind of curious to see where the Father would lead us with that. Let's start with a few verses, shall we? Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to read verses 8, 9, and 10. It's probably Grace's most famous contribution to our Christian idea, and that is our salvation experience starting with grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what He has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. I'll really leave 9 and 10 for a moment, go back to 8. That's the foundational thought of my salvation. By grace saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And I don't want to get in the weeds here, but that's prompted a lot of people to wonder, is the gift of God grace or is the gift of God faith? Did God gift us with his grace or did God gift us with faith? And I like to say God gifted us with both. Whatever you have is a gift of God. And so your faith is a portion of the gift of God. Your grace is most definitely a portion of the gift of God. So let's just give it all to God. It's all God. God's the reason why we have the faith that we have, and God is the reason why we have the grace that we have. But that doesn't really answer what is grace. Grace is from the Greek word charis. We get the English word charisma with the root C-H-A-R-I-S. Charis. Charis is goodwill, favor, loving kindness. But it has as its root, at the root of it is, is a gift. You didn't buy it. You didn't earn it. It's a gift. If you can buy it or earn it, it can't be grace. That's why we call people charismatic. That guy is charismatic. What do we mean? He's gifted. Charis. He has a gift. His gift might be the gift of gab. (laughs) It might be the gift. He might have personality. He might have looks. He might have... He knows how to make money. He's he's a talented athlete. We call those charismatic characteristics because some some guys got them, some don't. Why does he have it? I don't know. It's charisma. He has it because it's a gift. He didn't earn it. He He didn't go get it because he paid for it or he put in the time. Some people just have, we like to call those naturals, you know, Athletes that are naturally an athlete. Now, they have to work, but they just have something like that somebody else doesn't have. So in our vernacular, charisma, gift, 
Charis, English word grace, we've been graced. If I say you've been graced with something, we know that means you've been gifted with it. When we talk about grace in Christian, in the Christian vernacular, it can't be anything I've done. It has to be everything he's done. Therefore, it's charis. It's gifted to me by God. It is God's love for me independent of my love for him. I don't have to love him. He loves me. Loving him comes out of knowing he loves me. I don't have to jump through hoops for him. He jumped through hoops for me. The gift was that he jumped through the hoop for me. That's the cross. That's the resurrection. That's the life of Christ. I receive that independent of jumping through hoops. If I had to jump through hoops to get it, it's not grace. It's not charist. It's not graced to me if it's a paycheck to me. Therefore, whatever I get from God, I cannot have earned it or you can't call it grace. And we're bandying the term grace around sometimes in the church about stuff we think we're doing. But if it's grace, it isn't me. And if it's me, it isn't grace. And so my salvation begins with grace. It begins by knowing that I can't be saved on my own merit, my own stuff. But at the core, grace is more than a concept. More than a concept, but never less than a person. And what I mean by that is if all we have is grace as a concept, we'll, we'll throw out grace scriptures, talk about the love of God, and hate our neighbor. If we have grace as a concept, we'll, we'll have everybody's grace book, we'll wear grace t-shirts, we'll stick, you know, Carice tattoos on our deltoid and a grace bumper sticker on our car, and we'll mistreat our coworkers, and we'll talk down to our neighbor. Because we have a concept that has not penetrated our heart, and that is prevalent in a lot of our understandings of grace or faith or righteousness or love. So grace cannot just be a concept. When people say to me, I understand grace, that doesn't mean anything to me. I want to watch you live. Because grace is going to come out in the way you live, not in the way you, just the way you talk. Because I've known some grace talkers. They got the scriptures down. They, they know how to quote so-and-so's book. They've got the lingo. They're grace cops. You know, they can tell you what's wrong with every church in town, what they ought to be preaching. And then you watch them live and you go, man, there's no grace there. They don't have grace for their family. They don't have grace for their friends. They certainly don't have grace for their enemies. And so you can have grace up here as a concept. But to me, grace is more than a concept. But it's never less than a person. And what I mean by that is it's never less than Jesus. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Meaning the truth of who God is, is wrapped up in Jesus. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. You want to know what God loves like, watch Jesus. You want to know what God sounds like, listen to Jesus. If all of that's true about truth, all of that's true about grace. Grace is God's loving kindness extended to man as personified in the man Christ Jesus. So grace loves like Jesus. Grace moves like Jesus, acts like Jesus, never less than Jesus, and never outside of Jesus. So grace is more than a concept, but never less than Jesus. Never anything other than Jesus. It always looks like and moves like Jesus. Now here's the fascinating thing. Jesus, in four Gospels, a lot of words written in red in four Gospels, a smattering of words written in red in Acts, 
a word or two in the Corinthian letter, and a couple chapters in Revelation. This is the talking Jesus. And never once does he say the word grace. So how can grace, which is more than a concept, but never less than a person, how can grace be about a man never preached about grace? Which tells me that preaching grace, teaching grace, and talking grace is far less important than living grace. So you can be conceptually brilliant on grace and not be full of grace. Jesus never says the word grace in his ministry. But every love, every acceptance, every outreach, every move, it's walking grace. It's talking grace. So the great, the, the fascinating thing about grace to me in, the, in, in relation to who Jesus is, is that he says nothing about it, but he says everything about it. And so it isn't about framing everything in the right language, because here's what happens when grace is a concept but not really a person, is we start to develop a bunch of markers like that become division points. Grace churches, the grace message, he's a grace preacher. We use grace as an adjective, the kind of church we go to, grace church. The kind of preacher he is? Grace preacher. What message does he preach? Grace message. And this is where grace has become a concept to help describe a building, a belief, a ministry, or a person. And there really should never be any such thing as anything that's not grace church, grace preacher, grace message. And if you say it, grace has to come out, you got to say the word grace, you got to teach grace, got to talk about grace. I'm not sure you understand grace. Jesus never says grace, and he's all grace. And so when we just use it as a concept, it just starts dividing us, doesn't unite us. Goes, you know, I was there, he never even talked about grace. Go, well, that's okay. Jesus didn't talk about grace either. But did he show grace? Don't tell me what he talked about. Show me what he shows. Tell me what he shows. Tell me how he loves. Tell me how he treats his staff. Tell me how he treats his kids. Tell me how he treats people. Tell me how he treats his neighbor. Tell me how you treat your enemy. That's showing grace. You can concept to death and not know grace. And so I think when it's a concept, it becomes an adjective. When it's an adjective, it becomes a divider. They're not a grace church. And we say that because the guy didn't preach enough grace sermons. Yeah, that's a grace preacher because he preaches grace sermons. And yet, it might not be anything about Jesus. And so one of the fundamentals of grace is get off the train of having to have everybody say the word grace all the time because... You're following a man who never bothered to say grace in any of his sermons, and yet Jesus is walking grace. And so this is more than a concept, never less than Jesus. So what we really are doing when we talk about the grace of God is we're pointing you to Jesus. So whatever points you to Jesus is at its core God's goodness, God's grace, God's loving kindness. It's God's mercy. The reason why this, this particular text is so important to us as, as followers of Christ is because it's the kickoff of our salvation. By grace, we are saved. So whatever I was in, I get pulled out of by God's grace. That's God's goodness. That's God's favor. That's not me. I didn't get pulled out because I pulled myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps. I didn't get pulled out because I become disciplined. I didn't get pulled out because I got to the right church. I started giving. I became a missionary. I went to Bible college. All of those things are great. 
Some of them can be amazing. Some of them can be absolutely necessary. Some of them can be a waste of your time. But salvation isn't anything you do other than believe on the one who saves you, and then grace begins your journey. Now, for a lot of us, we had basically two ways to define grace for most of our Christian lives. And see if you fall into either one of these or fell into any one of these. Um, grace to get saved and grace to stay saved. Grace to get saved was the message of grace that we used at the end of a sermon to get sinners to accept Christ as their Savior. So you could preach whatever. You get to the end, heads bowed, eyes closed. Raise your hand if you want to, if you want to know Jesus. Maybe you come up to the front. Maybe you stand right where you are. Sing a verse of amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. Repeat the sinner's prayer. No matter how bad you are tonight, no matter what... I'm, I'm quoting here, okay? This is, this is our sound at the end of the sermon. No matter how much sin you walked into this building with, no matter what you've done before, no matter how wicked you've been, Jesus loves you. Jesus will save you. God's grace right now is good enough for all of your sin. Amen. Right? Grace to get saved. And we all come to Jesus through one way or the other that sounded somewhat like that. Now, some people come in because they were scared they were going to go to hell. Some people come in because they had a miracle happen and God did something incredible in their life and they went, I'm going to go follow him. And some people saw love and they wanted love. And there's a thousand reasons people come to Jesus. And I'm not saying any of them is wrong uh, or any of them is the only one, um, but they're all grace. And any other way, you didn't find Christ because he won't ask for your stuff. He asks for you. And so that's grace, to get saved. And all of us, at one, in one way or the other, had that because I've never met an actual law Christian who believes you got to do law to get saved. There's a fine line. I've not met law priests who got to do law to get saved. I've met the second type of grace, or people that deny grace. We have those who believe grace keeps you saved. Now, a lot of us, almost all of us had number one, grace to get saved. How did you get saved? Grace of God. Absolutely. But staying saved, there was whole segments of the church I wasn't raised in <laughs> that believed that grace could keep you saved. I was actually raised in a tradition that believed that uh, you kept you in or out. And if you did this or that or this, you probably were gone. And if you weren't gone today, you'd probably be gone next week. And I couldn't tell you what line it was you weren't supposed to cross, but bless God, there was a line. You weren't supposed to cross it, and the Holy Ghost would tell you when you got there. And if you didn't figure it out now, you'd figure it out when you were burning in hell. I mean, that is honest to God. That is how we preached about staying saved. If you didn't figure it out now, you're going to figure it out when you wake up in eternity and you missed heaven. And you're going to want to punch that preacher in the nose that told you you were saved. <laughs> And we'd tell these stories about people having visions of hell and people reaching down into the flames and pulling people up. And, and, you'd, and the guy'd go, who are you looking for? He goes, I'm trying to find that preacher that told me I was saved. <laughs> and you know, you'd get all frightened about losing your salvation because you, you'd had the number one grace, grace to get saved, but you didn't, weren't ever introduced to the grace to stay saved. Um, but, there's, but, but that second grace, grace to stay saved, big part of the church had that. I finally was introduced to the fact that God, the God who saved me, was also capable of keeping me saved. But in one way or the other, that's grace. That's about all we ever say about it. It's either God saved you from your sins, saved, past tense, that was the moment of your conversion, there's grace. 
or God's keeping you saved in spite of yourself and in spite of your sin. And most of us leave grace to those two things. And in every case, grace is simply about my getting saved or staying saved. And I want to present to you a grace fundamental. The grace of God is far more than getting saved and staying saved. The grace of God is for every day of your life as you live this life. And it has nothing to do with keeping you saved or getting you saved. It has to do with a loving father loving his kids. Because grace is the loving kindness of God extended to all of us undeserving. And you love your kids undeserving. What did they do to receive? Why are they living in your house? What did they do? Why do they get to eat at your table? What did they do? Why did they get to have your name? What did they do? In fact, they've done enough wrong by the conditions of the world to not deserve goodness. But we do it because we love them, because they're ours, because they share our name and they share our DNA. And that's clinical. But in a, that's just clinical, but in a personal sense, we love them because they're part of who we are. We see our spouse in their eyes. We see our dad in their smile. We see our grandfather in their laugh. And it links us back and and thus, we are kind without obligation. We don't ask our children to earn their bedroom or to earn their lunch. We might ask for chores. We might put discipline on them, but it's all preparatory. It's just trying to get them ready for the world. It's not trying to get them to earn their sheets or their pillow or their bar of soap. We're not trying to get them to earn cleanliness or food. We're simply showering on them things they can't possibly deserve. We understand that almost inherently. We ought to translate that onto our Father. That's the grace of God. And so he sees in us the very image of who he is. Even in our lowest time, in our darkest moment, continues to be good to us, not simply to save us from hell, not simply to keep us saved, but because he loves us. Because he looks at us and he sees the ages the family, you can see your grandfather or your great-grandparents or your mom and dad or your siblings in your, in your kids. What does the father think when he looks into the eyes of his creation? How far back does God see when he looks at you? I've thought about that before. Like, what, what is a move you've ever made that reminds him of Jesus? You know? Like he sees you make a, he sees something in your eyes and goes, that was my son by Galilee one day. He looked just like Larry looked right there in that moment. And you think, ah, oh, it's not possible. I, I really think that, I, I think that way in those terms of, of just God stretching back through that, through that, sort of through that family tree. So it's not just grace to get saved. It's not grace to stay saved. It's grace to live. Um, unfortunately, we're so entrenched in a do your best, let God do the rest mentality, even in Christianity, that we don't have a lot of room for grace to really overtake our days. We kind of think grace picks up the slack of whatever's left over. Most Christians live in a way that says, do the best you can do, and wherever you drop the ball, God will help you. That's God's grace. Because we'll go, boy, I did all I could do, but by the grace of God, we got it done. Uh, 
I, I put all I have into it, and then God's grace does the rest. And I think that's backwards. I think we ought to be looking for God's loving kindness, God's favor, and God's goodness first, and then live out of it. Not go live the best we can live and then let God pick up the pieces, but rather go live as if we matter. Go love as if loving matters and let out of that God's grace shine forth in the world. And I believe that because look at that text again. Look at 9 and 10. My salvation is not the result of works so that no one may boast. I didn't do anything. 10. For we are what He made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Look at that. I've actually been created by God for good works. I'm saved by grace. Good works come out of my knowledge of grace. So the more I understand about God's grace, the more good works comes out. I don't think we'll have less good works if we free people into grace. I think we'll have more good works if we free people into grace. They'll just be good works from knowing who I am not good works to try to get God's attention. Like, I'm going to do good to get God's attention. No, I am who I am because I already got God's attention. And living out of that is my privilege. Now, there's more. Now, go context now. I gave you 8, 9, 10. Go to 4. Same chapter. Ephesians 2. Backtrack to verse 4. And read in with this. God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Some of your translations have that in parentheses. You might have an in-dash right there as well. NRSV has an in-dash. I want you to notice how it's almost like a parenthetical afterthought by Paul. I want you to take it out for a second. Because that's what you can do with in-dash statements or parenthetical statements. You could take them out, watch the sentence, try to stand without it. All right, so start in verse 5. Take the, take the parenthetical out. We'll read 5 and 6. Even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It doesn't feel like it loses anything. It's this continual thought of the fact that I've been seated with Christ. So why does Paul throw it in? It's not a throw-in, but why does he put it in there at all? We're dead, then we've been made alive, and then he wants to remind you. Here's the in-dash or the parenthetical. You were dead, you've been made alive. How did it happen? You were saved by grace. I think it's fascinating right here that Paul throws this in, this parenthetical moment into the middle of the sentence, because we have this tendency to forget that we are who we are because of God's grace. It's, it's almost like it's natural for us to forget that all of this is a gift. My favor is a gift. My, my identity is a gift. My righteousness is a gift. My forgiveness is a gift. Everything I have from God is a gift. Because as, as you begin to treat it as a gift, you become grateful. Thanksgiving comes out of your heart as you realize you didn't do anything. What's the opposite? If you don't see it all as a gift, you see some of it is earned. And what comes out of people who feel like they've earned it? Self-righteousness. And judgmentalness. And it's why the less you concentrate on how this is all him and not you, the easier it is to be judgmental. Because if I can do it, then why can't you do it? If I'm earning this, why can't they earn this? If I'm able to achieve this, why are so-and-so able to achieve this? 
And the longer we live in that space, the more angry we get at grace. We become the elder brother. How could you accept my brother back home? He wasted your substance on riotous living. He's been out here sleeping with whores in a pig pen, and he comes home, and you put a cat, kill the fatted calf and put a robe on him and bring him into the house. I'm not going into that party. I've been out here doing my part. See, and how quickly we can go into that when we feel like we're earning our spot at the table is that everyone that didn't earn their spot at the table doesn't deserve to be there at all. And so you can usually tell how saturated people are by grace by how judgmental they are. You don't even have to get into the concepts. Don't ask them to quote scripture. Just ask them what they think of so-and-so. And what comes out of their mouth about so-and-so will be how penetrated grace is. Beyond being a concept, becoming something very real, how deeply has it sank into their heart? Just, hey, what do you think of this guy? What do you think of them? What do you think of those people? What do you think of what's happening over there? And the more vitriol and anger that comes out, oftentimes the less saturated we are by it all being God's grace. Because I didn't earn any of this. I didn't earn any of my goodness. I didn't earn any of my favor. I didn't earn any of my forgiveness. How can I be angry at you for receiving the grace of God when I didn't earn any of what I have? But anywhere that I think I earned it, I'm going to be turned off by those who did not do as much. And so I think it's fascinating to write here that right in the middle of a great theological statement, Paul goes, by grace. Because I just, I just don't want you to forget it, he says. I don't have to drop it in right here, but I drop it in right here because I don't want you to forget that you're not just raised and seated with him. This, is, this could be what Paul's thinking. I said could be. Can't prove it. This could be what Paul's thinking. You're not raised and seated with him because you're Jewish. He could be thinking that because Paul's coming from a Jewish background, writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, writing to his Jews by bloodline family, and going, don't think you're seated with God because you're Jewish. And he goes, cuts in and goes, no, it's by grace you're saved. It's by grace. You, you don't get it because your dad can trace his lineage to Abraham. You don't get it because you circumcise eighth day. You don't get it because you go to temple. You don't get it because you know Torah. You've been sprinkled with water. It's by grace you're saved. He could have put anything in there. He could have said it's because you're from the tribe of Reuben. It's because you were circumcised. It's because you know Abraham. But he doesn't. It's by grace. And so, raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places, verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there's two things out of this second chapter that, to me that are noteworthy. One, God is continuously across the ages showing us the riches of His grace. And two, He created us for good works. So as God shows me His goodness, good works come out of me. So if you want to see good works come out of people, show them the goodness of God. Preach grace. Even if you never say the word. What you're really doing is preaching Jesus. You're preaching the free gift of God through Christ Jesus. As you preach Christ to people, as you teach Christ to people, as you meditate on Christ, you grow in that. All right? So all of that sort of sets me up for, and I'll try to, a soft, smooth, quick landing here with this. All right? Let me just give you a few things that are concepts just to frame grace around, but grace is more than a concept. But we, we learn in concepts, all right? So using a concept is one thing. 
believing grace only as a concept is another. So it's more than a concept, never less than a person. So here's some concepts to help wrap our minds around grace. Three of them. One, go to Titus 2. All right? Titus, if you go to Hebrews, you went two books too far if you're in your hard copy. If you're using digital, then all you got to do is find the one that says Titus and rock and roll. You're there. Titus chapter 2, and here's my first concept about it. Grace guides us. Grace has become our steerage system. Okay? Outside of grace being our steerage system, it's going to be all kinds of other things. But the grace of God is the guidance system that we need. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. That's a powerful verse by itself. The grace of God brought salvation to all. Now, not everybody has accepted it, but grace has done the work. That seems to be what Paul says. Training us, old King James, teaching us to renounce impiety and worldly passions and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He it is who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. There it is again. Almost always in, the, in, the, in Paul's epistles, when you hear grace, you're going to hear good works. Grace, good works, grace, good works. And it's, in, in our mentality, it's good works, God's goodness. Here's how we do it. I'm good, God's good. I do good, God does good. I do good works, God will do good works. You do good things, God will do good things. People that are good, God does good to them. Good people get good things. Paul flips it. Paul goes, God is good, then you're good. God's grace is good, out of that you become good people. Because God's good, then you're good. When you know God is good, you'll be good. When you see God as good, you'll see you as good. When you see God as good, you might even see your neighbor as good, or at least they'll be worth living godly in front of, presenting God too. So, so grace flips that paradigm. It goes from I do good to, to get God to do good, and it turns into God is good, therefore out of God's goodness, I'll do good. But go back to 11, because I want you to see something. If you, if you put 11 and 12 together, listen to what you get. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions. What trains me to live right? According to Titus 2.11, the grace of God didn't just save me, it trains me to live right. So it is not the law of God that teaches me to live right. It's the grace of God that teaches me to live right. This is why you can put rules and regulations in front of people all day long and live a Christianity of morality, and you don't get people to live right. You just get people to lie. Because that's what happens, is they lie about living right. And I'm, I'm, we're not naive. We've all been in church our whole lives, and people lie about living right. And they lie about how good they're doing. And we do it in response to the law, because we can't live up to the standards. But we want people to think we can, and we, want, we know God knows we can, but we got to do what we can in front of Him, too. The reality is, is people don't live right because you put instructions in front of them. They just lie to you. They fake it as long as they're being watched. And the more rules you put up, the more tempted they are to break them. Stick a do not enter sign on that door over there. Put a hidden camera in the room. Put people by themselves. This is a scientific fact. 
We will check the lock. We want to know why we're not allowed in the room. I mean, we don't even care what's behind that door until there's a sign that says, don't touch it, don't enter it. If you see a bench that says wet paint, you always touch it because you're convinced that paint ain't wet. They ain't going to put wet paint on that bench. You never walked up and just touched a bench in your life, but you're going to touch that one because it says wet paint, don't touch. That's our nature. The more restrictions you put on people, the more likely they are to try to break those restrictions. You want to see people live... You want to see a, a sin explosion. This is, this is Paul, actually, in the book of Romans. But you want to see a sin explosion, a sin revival, preach the law for righteousness. Teach people that if they do right, they'll get right, and you watch it go crazy. It'll blow up. Because the harder they try to do right, the more they'll do wrong. That's human nature. Release people into the goodness of God. Grace teaches people how to live right. And by live right, I mean live according to the dictates of the sound of the Holy Spirit, not according to your dictates. Not my list. Not pastor's list. Pastor, this church this is how we live. That's a recipe for disaster in a church, by the way. As you get up going, this church, this is how we, this is what we consider morality here. Well, good luck with that. Let the Holy Spirit begin to instruct people in morality and watch liberty explode. I think most of us agree liberty's better than not liberty. Let's, let's don't even be Christian for a second. Let's just be Americans. Liberty is better than not liberty. That's why we love living in America. We go, we want to be the land of the free. Why do we think liberty is better? Liberty, liberty gives voice to people that we'd rather shut up. Because there's like a dark side to liberty, right? I mean, liberty gives people the right to say stuff we wish didn't have the right to say anything. But the fact that they get to say it is evidence that somebody's free. The point being there is liberty is always going to bring out weirdos. Okay? Guess what grace is going to do? And this is where grace gets fought in church. is because if you begin to preach the grace of God, you get some weirdos. Because the minute you set people free, you get everybody's freedom. Because everybody's free to disagree with you. They're free to dress differently than you, act differently than you, talk differently than you believe differently than you. And we'll find out how much grace is a concept when we find out how much we start trying to restrict what people think, what people say, how people dress, how people act, instead of accepting them as part of our liberty family. Because James said we've been released into the law of liberty. And liberty's great as long as you're in an echo chamber of people who agree with you. <laughs> But the minute you get in a room of people that disagree with you, we'd kind of rather there be less liberty. And that we're not unusual. And it's exactly why we clamp down on people in spiritual, spirituality and Christianity with law. Because the minute things get haywire, they go a little bit sideways, we start to throw the law in. What we ought to do is release people into the liberty of grace and not stop teaching them to listen to the Holy Spirit. And I've seen in too many grace circles, what's happened is we've just preached grace as a concept, but we haven't released people into following the Spirit. And we've stopped teaching good works, too, which is to our detriment. We don't even teach good works because we're scared of the word works. We think works is opposite of grace. Works is not opposite of grace. Works is only in trouble when it's void of grace. Works out of grace is what you were created for. You weren't created to sit around pat each other on the back about being grace people. You were created for good works, but they're supposed to be birthed out of being grace people. 
People who know their, their gifts aren't their gifts. This is God's. I just give it back to him. I have a responsibility to give it back to him. I have a responsibility to love my neighbor. I have a responsibility to go and do what I can in this world. I can't save the whole world, but I am responsible for what crosses my path. And while I can't touch everything going on over there or over there, and we're in a world that's pressuring us to have opinions about stuff we can't touch, and we, need a, we do need a revival of, of realism, of realizing that there are some things we can do something about and some things we can't. Our responsibility doesn't stop because the world's gotten too big. It just We might just need to bring the fences in a little bit and go, I can't fix, I can't fix the Ukraine. I can't fix the Middle East. I can't even fix Tennessee. But I am to love what walks across my path. I am to treat my enemy. I am to treat my neighbor. That responsibility doesn't go away. So we're in a world with such pressure to fix the stuff away from us. And if God grants you the wisdom to know how to do that, praise God, do it. But let's start with what we can do. And out of grace, that happens. So grace teaches us, I got to hurry. 2 Peter 3.8. I'm going to give you this one. Uh, go to Second Peter, uh, and we're gonna we'll, we'll we'll finish in Second Peter and First Peter. So both of these two little letters. We're gonna start in the second one. Second Peter three, eighteen. This is the last verse of Peter's epistles, and this is my second concept, and it's grammatically incorrect, but it's going with my first one. Grace guides us. Number two, grace grows us. Okay, and I grammatically, I know we're not. It doesn't sound right to say grace grows us, but. We'll say it anyway. Here's what I mean. 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grace, growing in grace is proportional to growing in the knowledge of Jesus. The more I grow in the knowledge of Jesus, the more I grow in grace. The less I grow in the knowledge of Jesus, the less I grow in grace. So you can read everybody's grace book and grow in conceptual grace and not grow in grace. But as you get knowledge of Jesus, this is why grace is never less than the person Jesus. It's also why we've had an overemphasis, I'm afraid, in treating Paul and his writings as if they are the apex of grace when we've got the living, breathing example of Jesus as grace. Paul's, Paul's got the concepts of grace. He's got conceptual grace. Jesus has got grace in action. Take Paul's concepts and define Jesus' actions with them. But don't ignore Jesus. Jesus is walking, talking grace. So the more you watch Jesus, the more you grow in grace. The less you watch Jesus, what would happen? The less you're going to grow in grace. Here's something else. The more you work your knowledge up on the things of this world, and there's things in this world you've got to have knowledge of, particularly what you your job, your business, your family, your career. But when the knowledge of this world becomes the backbone of your knowledge, it ceases to be the knowledge of who Jesus is, and we run dangerously close to becoming immature in grace because our knowledge is based more in the things that are of this world than of the things that are in Christ. And every believer has to balance that. All of us do. 
because we have a responsibility in our jobs, we have a responsibility in our homes, we have a responsibility with our money, we have a responsibility as citizens, we have a responsibility as a neighbor, and we got to know things. And the less we know, the more trouble we cause, and the, the more we destroy things, and the more we know, the, the better off things can be. And we have this balance that has to be struck between the knowledge I know in this system and the knowledge I know of who Jesus is. And you grow in the natural realm with natural knowledge, and you grow in the spiritual realm with the knowledge of who Jesus is. And those two things do not have to be mutually exclusive. That the only way you can grow spiritually is if you're an idiot. And the only way you can grow in the natural is if you don't know anything about God. Why do we treat these things this way? It need not be. We just need to put the attention in growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ by focusing on Christ. And I think it would help if we stopped making a dichotomy between our daily lives and our Christian lives. So this is business me, and then this is church me. And that's a problem. And that's why we have a hard time integrating the Jesus we see in the Gospels with how we work, because we don't think they go together. And maybe that's the Holy Spirit telling us that sometimes they're not going together, and, they, and that needs to be a reevaluation of our systems and our lives. That's our personal responsibility, to parse that difference and then to growing the grace of knowing who we are in Christ. And then here's the final one, and this one doesn't have my little grace guide, grace grow. The next one's not a grace G word. I just ran out of G words. Um, so I went with C words. Grace cannot be contained, confined, or controlled. That's my third thought. And here's my scripture. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Grace cannot be contained, confined, or controlled. And I, I will read a few verses starting in 8. Above all, 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, Maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. By the way, guys, that's the most, in my opinion, that last phrase is one of the most underpreached lines in the New Testament. One of the most world-changing and underpreached lines in the New Testament is, love covers a multitude of sins. And I'll tell you why it's underpreached. I'm in the weeds here. You can't land quickly if you're going to go in the weeds, so let's go quick. It's underpreached because we don't like the theology of sins covered. We like the theology of sins taken away. And so people don't preach love covers a multitude of sins because we like the theology of you can't cover sin. Sin's got to be removed. Cover people's sins by love. I didn't say cover up people's sins against people. if, If they victimize someone, tilt to the victim. This isn't a cover up. But love covers people's sins, and that's how we ought to be treating people. Cover them with love. Start there. Let the Holy Spirit do the rest. That's not the point of this. That's just the lead-in verse. Above all, maintain constant love for one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. There's a tough one, right? I mean, it's no fun to be hospitable and not be able to complain about it. If you're going to be hospitable, at least you can complain when they leave. (laughs) But look at this. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies. I'll stop there. 
The reason I brought this out is that we are told in Peter, this is an interesting phrase, good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold is the Greek word poikilos. And, and poikilos is the word that means multiple colors. It's almost the, a word we would use for rainbow. We, but we get the English word varied, V-A-R-I-E-D, various. Um, it's to make happy is its root word. Old English, to make gay, to make happy. And so the, the multicolored grace speaks of grace of every stripe, which is an interesting phrase because you would think grace is one thing. Grace is God's goodness. But Peter uses it. This is on the back side of already you having used this word. This is why, to me, contextual Bible study is fascinating. Because you can pull a verse and go, hey, look at this verse in the Bible. And if you don't know the whole letter, way back here in the letter, they set that verse up by saying something that seemed like it was by itself. But then if you pull them together, you've got twin pillars. Peter already set us up. Manifold grace, he used the word earlier in the book. Look at chapter 1, verse 6, and we're going to put them together. Chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says this, In this rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials. In the Greek, poikilos trials. Multicolored trials. Okay, manifold trial. Old King James says manifold there. Manifold trials, manifold grace. So this should answer our question. Why do we need different colors of grace, different stripes of grace? Because we have different stripes of problems. There's different stripes of people that enter our church. They don't all have the same issues. They don't all have the same hopes. They don't all have the same dreams. They don't all have the same backgrounds. They don't all have the same ideas. There's multiple grace for all of the multiple problems. Grace doesn't pull, pull us all into a homogenous existence. It reaches us in our variety. It's us that thinks the best way to build a church is homogenize everyone's worship, homogenize everyone's Bible reading, homogenize everybody's dress, homogenize how everybody thinks and how everybody talks. Peter said there's no such thing as homogeny in people. They have multiple issues, therefore they need multiple graces. And out of that is going to come a body of believers that are multiple colors because they're in different places in life. So they're not going to all think the same. They're not going to all talk the same. They're not going to all act the same. And I think it makes our father happy to see that because he sees the variety of his human family inside of his church. Not some homogenous zone where you left all of your other stuff outside. You come in here and you assimilate into the way we do things. But instead we embrace grace, can't be controlled, can't be contained, can't be confined because neither can people. Let me give you a practical example. This is, I'm trying to stop. <laughs> Practical example. Okay. Um, I, I come up in a church culture. Forgive me if this wasn't your cup of tea, your thing, but I had this idea when I went into ministry that the ultimate aim of the kingdom is to produce sons of God 
that are like Jesus. And if they're like Jesus, they're all going to be the same because there's not two Jesuses. There's not three Jesuses. There's one Jesus. And so ultimately, if we could just figure out what the right thing was, we'd have homogeny among believers. Um, That caused me a lot of pain and suffering because it took a long time to come to the knowledge that God is not in the business of stripping away personality. Personality, preference, idea. And here's my, here's my, here's my real example. I'm an introvert at heart, like a true introvert. Um, I don't need to be loud or heard. Um, Speaking in front of people comes naturally to me and easy to me, but it is not something that I need to do or my life is not fulfilled. I'm the kind of person who can go the whole week and work and not come in contact with another human being and feel like all is well with the world. You know, just kind of silent to myself. But when I went into ministry, that was that was deemed the thing that has to go. Like, there's no room for introverts in the American church. Like, we believe that extroversion is the way you're supposed to be if you're truly inspired of the Holy Spirit. Loud, boisterous, fun, funny, outreaching, evangelical. Like, you got to be a leader, charismatic. But charismatic didn't just mean gifted. It meant loud, yeah. do stuff. And, and so church environments tend to treat people that are introverted as if there's something wrong with them, that if they found Jesus, they'd suddenly be extroverted. Like they'd suddenly be, which I I went through that business too. So I fought against my introversion. So there was a lot of times I wasn't honest. I was a liar. I was acting like what I wasn't because I didn't think you could be introverted and be in leadership or teach because you had to be, you know, going crazy all the time. And, so, and I, I try to set people at ease is to say there's multiple people in this room with different stripes and there's multiple grace of God. The stripes of God's grace are to reach the stripes of who you are. It is not God with his thing, one thing, and us with 50 things and God going, okay, you got to squeeze all of this into this. No, it's God saying, I'm going to meet you where you are. And I'm going to do the work, you and me, together. And, it, and it'll look a lot of different ways. And this is scary. I'll close with this thought. This is what scares people about the message of grace. They're scared that if you set people free, they're going to sin like crazy. My response to that is they usually will at first because they've been faking it for a long time. Most people I went to church, a lot of people I went to church with were just trying to live moral codes When they came into grace, they went nuts. They went out and sinned like dogs. I'm serious. And the reason they did that is because the real them finally stood up. And the real them had been suppressing a lot of stuff they wanted to do. And the minute they realized they could be real, they went out and tried a bunch of stuff. Now, some of them left the the Lord and never came back. And what that really showed me is they never had a revelation of God's love. All they had was religion. And once religion went off their backs, they didn't have any other thing to do, so they just went and lived for the devil anyway. But I also found that if, you, if people know where home is, they'll go slop hogs, but eventually they go home and live with their dad. 
That's the story of the prodigal. The dad wasn't scared to give his inheritance to his kids, even though, what if he wastes it? Yeah, well, he probably will. In fact, he'll probably, we don't know how long he was out there slopping hogs. I think it might have been years. And he finally went, all right, you know, I've had enough of this garbage. Go home. But, it's only, but grace lets you walk out the door. In John 15, Jesus said, or John 10, I'm sorry, Jesus said, I am the door. If any man enters in my way, he can go in and out and find pasture. What's that mean? He can go in and out and find pasture. That don't mean save, lost, save, lost, save, lost, save, lost. It means saved people who go in and out from where they are, secure in the knowledge that the door is open to come into the Father's presence. And the more we learn of Jesus, the more we go in. I I believe this. If I didn't believe this, well, I wouldn't say it because I've stopped saying things I don't believe. So I'll say what I believe. The more our grace grows in the knowledge of who we are in Jesus, the more in we go than out. But but when we go out, we don't lose anything of our grace. So we might be Laodicea with him standing at the door knocking. Come on, let me in. We're still the church. There's just more if we'd open the door. And that's what I'm loving about this stripe of grace that I'm in now is going. There's dad on the other side of the door going, son, there's some things I'd like to tell you. Come on in. And you don't have to earn it. Just come and sit with me. I said more than I wanted to say tonight. That's the fundamentals of grace. That's 101. There's a 202 and a 303 and a 404, but that's 101. And I hope it was truly 101, but I tried not to. I really tried to stay on the trail, but I pulled out a few times and went over here and over here. But can I pray with you? And then I'll... Um, and then I hand it back to you. I, I hijacked enough of your night. Uh, but I'll hand it to you and, and see what the Holy Spirit says in you and through you. Father, I thank you for tonight. And I thank you for this, this beautiful opportunity to share grace fundamentals with my friends. And doing it under the knowledge that there are a lot of people looking for your grace. And that this might be one of those messages that helps introduce them to that grace and I pray that it will it will lead them not to this ministry or to another ministry or not to another book it'll lead them to an encounter with the man Christ Jesus and as they sit at Jesus feet they'll grow in grace and we believe that in Jesus name amen